That was so good. Whew. If you like aren't filled up through the music and the uh, praying, good grief. That was good. If you got a Bible, turn to Daniel chapter 1. Thank you, Bonnie, for praying. Thanks, Nick and Noah, for leading us in worship. That Oh Praise the Name is batting a thousand. I've never heard that song and not got teary-eyed. There's something that happens at some point in that song where it just wrecks me every single time. And I don't, I'm not a crier. I don't cry a whole lot. Um, But man, that one gets me every single time. So I love it. Um, So I want to tell you a story as we get going about a guy named A. Paget Wilkes, who was a missionary to Japan. Uh, at the late 1800s, early 1900s, and went there to share the gospel with the Japanese and had horrible success. Like, the guy was, by all accounts, a complete failure at first. Um, And it just was a disaster. Like, he would try to share the gospel, and nobody would respond, and no one would listen, and he was having no success by any heavenly or earthly standard whatsoever. And so he said, you know what? Like, i got to come up with a different plan. And so he started sitting down with the Japanese people, uh, just listening to them, asking them questions about what it was like to be Japanese as a guy who is from the British Empire, uh, trying to understand how they thought of life, how they thought of faith, all those things. And, and some uh, topics kept coming to the top in talking with them. And one of them was Japanese people 125 years ago had a tremendous fear of uh, what happens after death. And their faith or their traditions had very little answers to that question. And so uh, he, he just heard this over and over in these interviews, these conversations with Japanese people. And so he said, you know what, like, rather than just preaching or sharing or being on mission to no effect, why not change my, the way I'm approaching this. And so he began when he would share the Bible with Japanese people to talk about scriptures that talk about hope and life in Christ and the security of life after life. So that not only in Christ do we get abundant life, but we also get eternal life. And, uh, and at this point, he began to have some measure of success. And uh, I love seeing what Christians have said and done in history. It actually steadies me a lot in 2021 to see people who are much smarter or much godlier than me who have made it to the finish line following Christ well. And, uh, and so I love that story. There's other stories like it. One that stands out is the story of William and Catherine Booth, uh, who were the creators of the Salvation Army, who... Uh, had a great ministry to the poor of England in the mid-19th century. But I know that you're like this too, like, right? We, we all want the, the gospel that we love and believe to fall on the hearts of our friends and neighbors in a winsome way. Like, we all do that. That's why none of you this morning, when you walked up, took your turn or burn picket sign and set it against the fence while you fixed your coffee. Like, I didn't see anybody come in this morning with a turn or burn picket sign. I don't, I don't see anybody wearing a shirt this morning that says, God hates fill in the blank. Like, nobody is wearing, a, nobody wants to do that because we want the message of the gospel to be winsome and appealing. And we're so revolted and repul- like we're repulsed when we see people who are sharing their faith or living their faith in a way that doesn't connect with culture. And I know that your desire, the desire of your hearts is to see uh, the gospel connect meaningfully with your neighbors and friends and family. I know that. I hear you guys tell me that all the time. And so part of why we're doing this not so fast series is to remind us to Sabbath well 
and to rest well? How many of you have taken a nap on a Sunday afternoon in the last couple of weeks? Like, praise the Lord. That's awesome. You're obeying the sermons, taking your good naps. That's awesome. I took a nap this week that was so deep. Like, it was so deep, Natalie. I think she thought I was dead. And eventually she just decided she was going to TJ Maxx to celebrate my going home to be with Jesus. And um, it was a great day for all. Uh, I get it. Like, we're doing this not-so-fast series because this is a place, like, A. Paget Wilts figured out the existential fear of Japanese people being death in the afterlife. People in our culture are so overworked. Speaking of Japan, do you know that the average American works 137 more hours a year than the average Japanese person? Now, that doesn't seem like much. That's two and a half hours extra a week. But that's a, that's a pretty big difference, right? The average American works, let me get my numbers right, 260 more hours a year than the average Brit. That means five hours more a day or a week, excuse me. Um, the average uh, American works uh, 499 more hours a year than the average French person. So these are big gaps. Americans, we just work. We're not even sure why we work so hard, right? Like, do you accomplish so much more sometimes by 60 hours than by 55 hours, by 40 hours? Like, I think a lot of times we don't. Like, a lot of times we're like just riding out the clock at the end of the week because you, you don't want to go home early. Like I had a pastor who told me one time, like we were in a community with a different rhythm. He said, we were in a farming community. He said, you know what? The farmer works till the farming's done. And then the farmer goes inside and takes a nap. Uh, and he was teaching me the idea that you work until the work is done. You don't quit because it's four o'clock. But the reverse is also true. We live in a culture that wants to keep you there three hours past closing time because that's the noble thing to do. That's the Boston kind of thing to do, the American thing to do. And so part of this series is to hopefully that we would begin to live as a different people, a Sabbathing people, a resting people, a breathing people, and not just um, as these overworked, exhausted people like what we find in most of our culture today. I actually think resting well may be one of our best witnesses. I think taking a day off and being here, the ability to carve out 75 minutes out of your week to be here may say more about your faith and what the gospel is and does than actually being in church, like actually being in church. The ability to carve out the margin to do this because God is good and worth your uh, love and um, rearranging your life so that you can rest may say more about our God than you being at church. And I think that that's winsome and beautiful. And so today I want to read you the story of Daniel 1. Every time we do a sermon series, I create a spreadsheet. I'm not a spreadsheet guy, and that's why I create the spreadsheet, um, to hold me accountable. And so whenever we go into a series, we kind of know where it's going to go, whether it's three months or four weeks or whatever. And this week I had a passage that we were going to preach and a theme. And man, about Wednesday, the Lord, I, I felt like, I felt in my heart, like God didn't part the heavens and talk to me. I just felt like God was like, this is what, we're going to talk about something different. I know you got your spreadsheet and you want to try to be a nerd and like stick with the spreadsheet, but this week I got a different plan. And so the Lord led me to this passage in Daniel 1, and it may be a little confusing as to why we're talking about it uh, as we talk about Sabbath, but hopefully by the end it'll make sense. If it's okay with you, I'm going to read this um, Methodically, but I'm going to interrupt the verses with an explanation of what's going on, uh, if that's okay with you. I think it'll, I hope it ends up making sense in the end. Here we go. 
Now, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Let me stop, because um, this is kind of important. Probably a lot of you know sort of the history of the ancient Jewish people, of Jesus' descendants, but just in case you don't, understand that God created everybody out of Adam and Eve, from Adam and Eve, and, but later on through a man named Abraham, he made a covenant, and then with Abraham's descendants, he made another covenant, and in those covenants was the promise that if they believed and obeyed God and worshiped him, then he would bless them. But in some of the other covenants with those people, he also said, but if you do not believe me and you wander away from me and you worship other gods, then I will give you into the hands of your enemies. And last week we talked about Elijah and Elijah was one of the prophets of ancient Israel. And Elijah was one of the early voices that was saying, repent, believe the Lord, turn from worshiping other gods. And the people for a moment did a little bit of it. But the history of the ancient Israelites, of Jesus' descendants, is kind of this slippery slope downwards, away from the Lord, away from trusting him, away from his goodness, into idolatry. And toward the end of their sort of history as a nation, uh, because they went away for centuries, literally, um, this king, Nebuchadnezzar, from Babylon, comes in and ransacks the remnant that's living in, in the city of Jerusalem. God's people were captive. They were besieged. Cities without good walls were taken. And eventually the, the few people of Israel were condensed down into the city of Jerusalem. And Nebuchadnezzar comes in to the city. He besieges the walls. He gets through the city. He wrecks the temple, takes the, you know, the Solomon's temple, tears it apart, and, um, and then comes in and steals some of the stuff from there. And carries the best of the people, all the royalty, all the smart people. Uh, he basically goes to the high school. He finds the cheerleaders, the beta club, the football players, the volleyball players, because we got some volleyball players in here, shout out. Uh, the people who are actors and actresses, got some of those too. The creative people. He takes all the people who were really gifted and he carries them off into Babylon. And he takes me and all of my friends and he just leaves us there. Um, he just leaves us there. He's like, those guys are no threat to me and they are no benefit to my kingdom. You guys just stay here and hang out. And, uh, and that's where we find ourselves in verse three, the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the Royal family, because he took the, the Royals when the, when he stole the people from Jerusalem of the Royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance Skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace to teach them the literature of, and language of the Chaldeans. So here's what I want you to do. Get me all the best looking ones and then bring them into my palace and three things are going to happen. A couple things are going to happen. One, he says, we're going to just bring them in here. We're going to get the best of the best. 
And then for three years, we're going to teach them. We're going to indoctrinate them. We're going to teach them our language. We're going to teach them our stories. We're going to teach them our God stories. We're going to teach them how we view money, how we view people. We're going to teach them about how women view men, men view women, how we view the gods, how we treat outsiders. For three years, we're going to indoctrinate them and take these people of Jewish worldview and make them of Babylonian worldview. And then the outcome was going to be that they were going to come in after three years and they were going to stand before the king, Nebuchadnezzar, and then he was going to judge them to see if they were of any account or not. This is important in a moment. So you got the king here, and after three years of indoctrination, he is going to bring this royalty, these royal kids, these beautiful, smart, Hebrew, Jewish, Israelite kids in, and he was going to judge over them, all right? Now, continuing in verse 5. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were going to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. And so they're coming and they're going to eat this food. Now, we don't know, is this idol food? Is the king uh, eating the food that's been sacrificed to the gods? Or is the king eating non-kosher food like pork and just food that any Jewish person who Fear of the Lord would not eat because God had forbidden it in Scripture. We're not totally sure. Here's what I do know. Whatever these guys are being fed, it's what everybody in the empire would want. I don't know what President Biden's having for dinner tonight, but I bet it's going to be better than the popcorn we usually have at Casa de Mangrum on Sunday night, right? Like, we don't even throw M&Ms in right now. Like, whatever President Biden's having, I bet it's better than what we're having at my house tonight. So whatever the king is offering to feed these young men and and maybe young women is going to be better than what most people are eating. And this is where we get into a bit of a sticky wicket because everybody would want it. Everybody would want to live with the king, learn from the king, eat like the king, be indoctrinated by the king for three years. Except there's these four guys who are a real problem, as we're going to see. Let's keep going in verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And that word's in there twice. And whenever an ancient language repeats a word twice, you want to perk your ears up, okay? And so we get the word king multiple times in the first seven verses. And here we get this word defiled twice. Daniel resolved that it was morally wrong and sinful to do what the king told him to do. And so verse 9 says, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And so there's this king's mandate to eat what others eat, aspire to what he wants them to aspire to, and fit in and survive. And that's really big. If, you, if you're taking notes, uh, some of you do that, you might just write in that phrase, fit in, because that's a lot of what this story is about. 
is about fitting in. And so continuing verse 10, uh, and the chief of the eunuchs, Ashpenaz, says to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. He's not even worried about them. He's just worried about himself. Uh, keep him going. 11, then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. It says, test us, observe us, and then deal with us accordingly. Verse 14, so he listened to them in this matter and he tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables. And so verse 17 says, As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So it seems like And I want to be really careful as your pastor to do this, and I want to encourage you to do this. Don't ever let the Bible say stuff it doesn't say. We want to be careful with that. Sometimes we read the Bible with all the children's stories that we've heard, and we kind of project little drummer boys into nativity sets, and we project all kinds of stuff into the stories that wasn't there. I'm making a bit of a leap here, but I don't think it's a leap outside the text. It seems like these guys were royal, attractive, and gifted. But what happens here in verse 17 seems like it comes after their faith and obedience. After they chose not to defile themselves, what happens? God gives them learning of the mind. He gives them skill. So he gives them wisdom of the mind. He gives them skill, wisdom of the hands. He gives them wisdom, which is wisdom of the soul. And to Daniel, he even gives this supernatural ability to differentiate between dreams and visions. God takes these good-looking, crazy courageous men who are willing to not fit in and stand out, even if it risks their lives, and he gives them this intelligence in all sorts. That's just mind-boggling. He gives them mind-boggling favor because after their obedience. Verse 18, at the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king, and I love this so much, I've never seen this till this week. And the king spoke with them and found among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, therefore they stood before the king. Let me um, tell you verse 20 and, and 21 will be done. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So for three years, the king wants to indoctrinate these young men, right? So the king is here after three years. Uh, Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael are going to come in, and the king is going to judge them. They're going to be here. But because they refuse to fit in, and they choose to stand out and obey the Lord over men, what happens? After the time, they come in, and the table gets flipped. And it says that Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael 
actually end up becoming the ones who stand before the king to help him interpret all the problems of his kingdom. So while the king wanted to be here and these men here, their faith and their obedience actually allowed them to be here while the king is here. And that's what the gospel does. That's one of the side perks. You become an influential person in culture when you decide to put Christ first, when we put Christ first and we refuse to fit in no matter what it costs us. It says that they were 10 times better than everyone else. They became the first call of the king. They became the voice of influence and they became a witness. So here's what happens to these guys. They fear God. They eat differently. They risk something. And it's easy to for, like it's easy because this story really only tells us about four young men. Everybody else, hundreds of others from ancient Israel and from other cultures are here because Nebuchadnezzar was a bad mamma jamma and like he was ransacking the ancient Near East, taking people from all kinds of cultures. And so we get the story of four men among a bunch of Israelites and a bunch of kids of other cultures, and these four stand out. And so they feared God. They eat differently, and then they're blessed with favor before God, which allows them to witness to and be influential with the king. So worship, plus their modeling of truth, allowed them to invite the king into a gospel reality. Worship led to modeling, which led to an invitation or a witness. Now, we're doing this series, the last couple of weeks we've We've talked about Sabbath and rest because we, and we've looked back. We've looked back to the Ten Commandments. We've looked back to a moment where a man was going from victory to victory, but he had to rest in between. We've looked back at Scripture. Next week, we're going to look forward at why, why Sabbath plays into our destiny. We'll look forward. But today, I want us to look right in the present at how Sabbath rest allows us to bear witness. Sabbathing well may be one of your best tools in the tool belt in Boston in 2021 if you want to see your friends come to faith. And, uh, and that's what we see here in Daniel 1. And so... Um, there's a few reasons or ways I think that it bears witness. You're, are, are Sabbathing well. The first one is it says, uh, it, it points to a difference in time, how we view time. Christians who can Sabbath well, who don't have to go so fast, who can rest well and breathe, we're saying something about time. Now, in ancient Greek, um, there are two words for time. The first one is chronos. It's where we get the, like, chronological, right? Like, it's linear time. And this is the world's version of time. I was reading the other day about how toward the end of the Middle Ages, there was a, a clock that was installed in central, uh, in, in, in central Paris. And for the first time in human history, people were beginning to orient their life around chronological time. Twelve, one, two, three, four, five. You know, and you can feel like a slave to that. I don't know if you do, but I have to map, I map my day out in blocks of time. And I look at my calendar every Sunday afternoon. I write down the things on my calendar. And I kind of have to follow that linear time of the plans. This is how the world's time works. The other word, though, uh, in, in the Bible for time is not chronos. It's this word called kairos. And kairos doesn't mean linear time. Kairos is more of a moment. You're like, remember that time when our kids were little and they used to trip and fall and it was awesome and we didn't want to laugh at our kids, but we did. Like, that time. You remember that time when God did something awesome? Here's going to be the big uh, kairos that we're going to live with as a culture. 
Remember that time when that pandemic hit and we had to just slow down for a few months? Remember that time? It, there'll come a day where we don't even remember that it was like March 13th, 2020, right? Like it'll be just that time where our life was different. Here's what happens in our culture. We get so busy following Kronos that we don't see the Kairos around us. We get so busy being slaves to our iCal that we forget that God is doing something around us that doesn't always last. I used to have this buddy at, at, um, at the church we started in, in South Carolina. And I remember one time he said something, I never forgot it. He said, I try to get up and read my Bible every day. And I try to be here every Sunday because I figured that God has something that he would say to me on this day or this Sunday that he may never say to me again. So even if I come next Sunday, I may miss what he wanted to say to me this Sunday. He had a perfect understanding of Kairos. God is doing something. And if we miss it, it may never come back because history doesn't run in circles. Here's the thing, why it matters for us as Christians, how we view time. When we Sabbath well, when we pause from Kronos once every seven days, we see the Kairos that, doing, that God's doing around us. And if we don't Sabbath well, we miss the Kairos. We miss the moments where God is doing something. And I think we can offer the world something in that. I think that's a good witness Man, your kids are only little ones. Like, I meet so many people who are so busy running their life and their kids are like getting away from them or the moments are getting away from them or their influence is getting away from them. That's just one example. We could talk about how this plays out in the lives of unmarried people and the lives of newlyweds and the lives of senior adults. We, we got to walk away from the chronos once every seven days so we can see the kairos. And there's a beautiful witness in that. The second way that we're a little different from the world is in how we, in what we value. And I wrote a list of values, but in the interest of time, I'm just gonna tell you that about my conversation, I've shared it with you before, my friend Drake, who said one time, he said, the highest value of uh, people uh, in, in downtown Boston is achievement. People in Boston want to achieve something, innovate something, create something that's never been achieved, innovated, or created before. He said, this drives Bostonians in a way that's uniquely Boston. Whereas in New York, he said, and he had lived uh, in Manhattan and worked in, uh, down on Wall Street in Manhattan, I think, uh, and he said, in New York, it's, it's, it's money. In Boston, it's innovation. And that is uniquely Boston because of the campuses and the history that's made here. We, there's a high value on striving and achieving and innovating. And we even see it in how people push their kids. Got to get my kids to this sports thing and, and this exam school prep and this thing and this thing. And it's like, because I need my kids to innovate and achieve because then that says something about me. And most of you are untethered from the slavery of this, but this is a, this is a slave master in our city, innovation and achievement, and passing that along to the next generation. And as Christians, the value that we model, the Sabbath not-so-fast value that we model, is that the gospel brings rest. And there's rest in being debt-free, and there's rest in experiencing peace in Christ, and there's rest in taking seven days and giving one for Sabbath. And we can breathe, and we can be beloved. If you hear nothing else today, I want you to hear that Jesus loves you. You are loved by Christ, loved by Jesus, loved so much by him. 
and I love you, and I love it when you walk through the door, and it's a privilege to lead you and be your pastor. You are loved. The gospel gives us a different value. It allows us to have margin and to celebrate my kids, not put them on some stupid um, treadmill that they can never get off of. The gospel liberates me from enslaving my children to this false, demonic value of always having to achieve. The third way that our rest bears witness is in our goals. Today, uh, a lot of you, I know what a lot of you will be doing at 8.30 tonight. Not all of you, but a lot of you will be watching Tom Brady come into Foxborough for the first time in 22 years as the visitor and try to uh, beat the one team in the NFL he's never beaten. And there's so much about Tom Brady and Bill Belichick that embody, like, I don't think Belichick and Brady would work in any other city in America. Because uh, Boston, we want Bradyan success. Like, be married to the supermodel, have the kids, live in the Brookline Country Club, and then retire to Florida, but still be playing NFL football and win seven rings and da-da-da, own all the records. We want Brady and success with Belichick and Joy. Bill Belichick, after a Super Bowl, just deadpan. Wouldn't even know it. Like, that is so Boston. Like, you win the Super Bowl, and you don't even crack a smile. Or you smile for 30 seconds and then like, oh, let's get back to it. Like, that is our world here. Like, do not smile. Don't let anybody know that you enjoyed it, that you laughed. We want Brady and success, Belichick and joy, and a relentless drive for more. But what does the church do? Let me read to you Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, what Jesus calls his people to. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you, learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what Jesus calls us to. Not not Brady and success and Belichick and joy and a drive for more. The gospel calls us to rest, to take Jesus' yoke upon us and surrender our heavy yoke, the weight of culture's expectations and our chronos and everything else. And then finally, Sabbath calls us to celebrate really well. The world is all about achieving and succeeding and winning. The church is about Christ finishing the work. I love what Bonnie prayed and what Nick's saying. It's true. The only time we look back is to the cross. And hopefully when we look forward, we look to Christ's ultimate victory. We don't have anything to prove. The most liberating thing that I am learning, and I think I've learned it like maybe 40%. I can't wait till I learn it 100%, but I doubt it's in this life. I bet it's in heaven. The thing that I'm loving learning is that I have nothing to prove with the Lord. I just have to be loved. You just have to be loved. So we celebrate being loved and we can take a one in seven and we can take moments and we can just relax because we don't have anything to prove. Man, that's so good. I wish there was a story I could tell you about that, but I, I won't. And you may say, JD, that's weird. Do you want me to be weird? Yes, I want you to be weird. I want you to be really, really weird. First Peter chapter 2, verses 11 says that we are exiles and sojourners here. We are like Afghan refugees thrown into America. That is what it is like to be Christian. This is not our home. We are sojourners. We are migrant workers coming up from Central America to come into this country for a season to work and then to send the money back. 
or to even go back after the season. We are sojourners. We are just passing through. I want you to be weird. I want you to be really weird. I want you to stand out. The gospel would call us to that. This is not your home. Don't try to fit in. Fear God and stand out. And you may say, well, won't there be consequences to standing out? Yes, there will be consequences. Here's the consequence. Matthew 5, 14 through 16. Jesus says, you're a city on a hill. You're a city on a hill. You're the, he says, you're the light of the world. Don't put your, you're a city on a hill. Don't put your light under a basket. Instead, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Yes, I want you to stand out. I want you to be so wildly different that your coworkers and family and friends say, dude, what are you doing? And you say, oh man, let me tell you about the Savior who allows me to rest, who doesn't demand that I be a slave quite like culture that liberates me because of what Jesus has done. And so like Daniel, I want to tell you, we live in a foreign world with king culture ruling. King culture rules like King Nebuchadnezzar. And king culture has some real expectations for how you're going to live your life, who you're going to date, who you're going to marry, how you're going to, how many kids you're going to have, what you're going to do. King culture has real expectations of you. Uh, Noah plays soccer. Uh, his league plays no city teams. We play only teams north of here in the Merrimack Valley and just north of here. And we get killed every time. It's like a bloodbath. It's tough to watch, right? Like Chadwick plays on those. It's really tough to watch. Like everything in you as a parent or in me, probably not Jamie because he's much more, Marcy's more competitive. She might do what I'm about to describe. Like everything in me wants to run out onto the field sometimes and just kick goals in. Because what happens in Charlestown, if you haven't noticed, is once you get to teenagers, and preteens, you just move out. Just go where there's more kids like your kids and where the sports are better and the academics might be a little higher and you just get out. And it is a counter-cultural thing to keep your kids in the city. But king culture doesn't rule. We're the people of God. And if you move to the suburbs, more power to you. Like, God bless you. But let King Jesus rule and not King culture, because King culture is going to tell you to do some certain things every time. And as much as we like to think that Boston stands out, it's a whole lot. It's about six million people who tend to be doing a lot of the same things. And the people of God are to be a different people. Culture demands work, achieving, striving of you at work, at home, with your kids, with your family. Like Daniel, regarding this not-so-fast series, you have to decide, will you defile yourself for fear of the Lord? Is defiling yourself to never rest? Is defiling yourself to never rest? But let me say, you are not a slave, you are not a robot, you are not a producer. You are a child of the good king. Like Daniel, your faith and obedience and risk and standing out will be a blessing. God gives those really gifted guys some next level stuff because they were willing to stand out. God will bless you when you rest. God will bless you when you set yourself apart in obedience to the gospel and out of just being free, not fear, just freedom. And then finally, like Daniel, you will be a voice of influence to king culture. I think about Hakeem Olajuwon, nothing like making the last point in a Christian sermon by pointing to a Muslim basketball player from the 90s. Uh, if you don't know who Kim Olajuwon is, I, I would say he's probably the greatest sinner of all time, as much as that pains me to say it. Um, but he was truly great. And the most impressive thing I ever watched Kim Olajuwon do was during Ramadan, when in Ramadan, from sunrise to sunset, uh, a devout Muslim can have no food and no water. And I watched Kim Olajuwon one time drop like 40 points and 20 rebounds on somebody in the middle of Ramadan with no water. Why do I remember that? 
I can remember that Kairos, not that Kronos, because I remember the announcer saying, this dude has had no water since before sunrise. And they would just watch him by the end of the game. He's like just essentially hobbling, exhausted to the sideline. But every time he comes back in after a timeout, like he is blocking shots, rebounding basketballs and scoring at will. I never will forget it because it was all the announcers could talk about. Whenever anyone does anything countercultural, people watch. There were hundreds, if not thousands of beautiful young men who ate the king's food. History only tells about four of them. It only tells about the four who stood out. It's the only ones we ever know. We don't know the names of any other of these people, but we do know their names. Costly convictions are still compelling. Costly convictions are still compelling. So here, let me give you two applications and we're done. One, tell yourself. Some of you need to like, like look in the mirror and tell yourself this over and over and over. I have nothing to prove. If you are a Christian, if you have been born again, because of the work of Christ, the death and resurrection of Jesus, if you have turned from sin and invited Jesus into your life, you have nothing to prove. And the best thing some of you can do, and me, is look in the mirror multiple times a day and just say, I have nothing to prove. I have nothing to prove. God is pleased with me. I don't have to prove anything to God or myself or others. I am loved and it doesn't matter. I am loved and nothing else matters. That would be a powerful witness that you can bear to yourself and to your neighbors about the gospel too. I want to invite you to this model that we see in Daniel to worship and then model something and invite people into that thing. Worship that sets the bar. Model, live in light of worship and then invite or be a person of influence and bear witness uh, there's a, uh, after, you, after we get done today, don't do this right now because it'll distract me. Uh, you look up on YouTube, the turquoise table. Um, there's a woman in Texas who uh, created this kind of cultural phenomenon essentially called the turquoise table. And she, what she did was she set up a picnic table in her front yard and she painted it turquoise because that was her favorite color. And she would take her computer out and just sit out there during work, work hours and have a, like a pitcher of tea or some cookies. I don't know what she had. And neighbors just would pass by and never stop. And eventually, uh, one neighbor came by and sat down and began to just shoot the breeze with her and share some coffee or tea or whatever she had. I can't remember what the, there's a YouTube story about it. And, uh, and then eventually, just neighbor after neighbor would just come and they would sit there during the day, this turquoise table and do life together. She's modeling something because of love of Jesus and worship that then becomes an invitation to others to come to the table. And that's what rest is about. And that's what Sabbath is about. And that's what the gospel is about. Uh, I don't know that I'm going to set up a turquoise table right there on Medford Street. That would be really fun. Nat and I are trying to figure out if we can contextualize that. But creating space in our life through Sabbath for Kairos to happen for moments where we can invite people into our life and share while we're different. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray that I have handled it properly today. I pray I've handled it well. Lord, I pray that these people in the room, these saints in Christ who are loved would just feel that so deeply 
that they have nothing to prove, but then that that would be so compelling out of that worship would flow a model, a modeling of the countercultural value of rest and Sabbath and breathing and trusting. Gotta think this is one of our best witnesses in Boston. How we value time and what we celebrate, what causes us to throw big parties and clear out work schedules to do it. Gotta pray we would model this stuff because we're loved, not because we have anything to prove. Certainly not to be loved. God, I pray for our teenagers in this church. Thank you for Ari and Hope, Christine, Noah, Chadwick, uh, Linus and Oliver, the basketball team. God, I pray that they wouldn't feel this pressure to prove. Pray we would model as a church. I pray for our uh, people in our church who are married. I pray for our unmarried people. I pray for those over 50. I pray for those under 50. I pray for the littlest of the littles all the way down to Bryn. God, that we would model that we are loved people. And that, that would be our witness. God, I do, selfishly, Lord, I just want to pray that we would see that you would super, sort of supernaturally, but maybe quite naturally begin to bring new people into here on Sundays who would come in and hear the gospel and receive it with enthusiasm, that people would turn from sin and trust in Christ and be baptized and go public with their decision to follow you, bold moves. God, I pray that that would supernaturally happen, that you would do your part and work on the hearts of our 18,000 neighbors in this neighborhood. I pray it would also happen very naturally that as we live as exiles and sojourners in this city, that we would become a winsome people and that that would give us a platform to share the gospel. And Lord, if there's anyone watching or anyone sitting in the room who's never trusted you, who's never surrendered their life to you, turned from self and sin to trust in the work of Christ, I pray today that they would repent. I pray we would all be active repenters, believers or not yet. I pray that they would turn from sin and I pray that they would trust the work of Christ, that they would literally say from their seat, uh, God, will you come into my life? I thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. I'm turning from myself and my sin. I'm trusting you. And God, I thank you that you receive us. And you love us just like we are, but too much to let us stay that way. Be honored by what's taking place here today. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.